Note to draft. Insert a heavy-handed boilerplate disclaimer about how this isn't legal advice right here. Thanks. Welcome to The Food Court, Season 2, a podcast hosted by me, Glenford Jameson, and supported by my law firm, G.S. Jameson & Company. We do great corporate commercial and regulatory work, primarily for stakeholders from all parts of the food sector. And when we're not doing that, we're researching, writing, or speaking on issues facing food and law. Most recently, I'm very excited about this, we co-organized Canada's first ever food law and policy conference with Professor Jamie Baxter at the Schulich School of Law in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And that was an astounding event by speakers from around Canada and the world who touched the area of food law and policy in some form or another. Best part of the conference for me was the connection between lawyers, government, industry, and academics. And for a first run, it was extraordinary to see a huge group of motivated and engaged folks who think about this intersection of food and law from the perspective of many different stakeholders. Lots of learning to do. I'm looking forward to seeing the shape it takes in 2017 and in future years. And more to come on that front in the new year. But uh, let's take a moment and just say thanks to Schulich Law Dean Camille Cameron, Michael Howell, and Leah Ronaldo of Devour Food Film Festival, who were amazing and we partnered with, uh, to Shannon Payne and Jessica Rose, who worked super hard to get this thing done, an incredible number of volunteers and everyone who attended. Remarkable stuff. It's the end of November. And that means it's the last podcast of 2016 for Welcome to the Food Court. We'll resume in the new year with some tremendous guests, but uh, everyone do be safe. It's a festive end of year season, so have fun. I'm particularly excited for this episode on whiskey. Now, I got into podcasting after appearing on the whiskey topic a couple times with great friend of the pod, Mark Bylock. So I trace Welcome to the Food Court's roots back to grain spirits themselves. On this episode, that's what we're talking about. I've broken this episode into two parts to get specific. The first part is the origin story of the Toronto Distilling Company, which was founded by two lawyers, Charles Benoit, my guest, and Jesse Razakpour, his partner. I'll get to that in a moment. The second part is all about the constitutional challenge brought by the Toronto Distilling Company uh, to the Liquor Control Board of Ontario's ambiguous proprietary charge to distillers, a 140% not tax, but markup on all sales by a distiller at their shop. It's going in front of the Court of Appeal in December of this year. I will note that since we recorded this, uh, Ontario's finance minister has announced a 61.5% spirits tax that is to be passed uh, in the legislature. And this has been largely received as being bad news for micro distillers in the province of Ontario. And a lot of folks in the whiskey world are pissed off with Charles Souza and Kathleen Wynne. If you're looking specifically for Bill 70, Spirit Tax, or hashtag Free My Rye content, that's all going to be in part two. So on to part one, the Toronto Distillery Company. It's a micro distiller and it reflects a new generation of whiskey makers, making products for a new generation of whiskey drinkers. Charles and Jesse focus on highly traceable and locally sourced grain for their whiskey in a world built for Hiram Walker, one of the world's largest distillers, to sell to the LCBO, the world's largest purchaser of beverage alcohol. Operating an innovative still at a small scale has presented challenges and opportunities. So get ready for us to fuss about the food and drugs regulation standard of identity for Canadian whiskey and rye, straight whiskey, some issues relating to the Excise Act, and creating a new mark or standard of identity to separate what Canada's micro distillers are creating versus more traditional distillers. Full disclosure, I'm a consumer enthusiast of distilled grain products, which is to say I like to explore the world of bourbon and scotches. On aggregate, I've spent a few weeks with my nose in mash tuns, my face burnt off by white dog from a still, and my nose tickled by molds that grow in rickhouses. My favorite whiskeys in the world are from some of the largest producers. I find that whiskey is a hyper-romanticized product, but the best whiskeys I've had uh, typically come from the most industrial scale of manufacturing processes. That's not to say that micro-distillers can't make incredible whiskeys. They can and they do. But typically, macro-distillers have the edge. They've got economies of scale, a huge difference maker in the whiskey-making game. 
they've typically got cash to wait the extra few years until a series of casks are just right, or they have the ability to create enough volume to afford some failed experiments when they're pouring money into an innovative product that they won't be able to see returns on for anywhere from three to 25 years. It's a strange business. It scales better than most. But I really admire Ontario's craft distillers, Charles and Jesse, the folks at Dillon's, Stillwaters, or GSJ and co-friend and intrepid lawyer Mike Hook and his last straw distillery. These are distillers that have seen global whiskey markets change. Uh, and they're seeking to make innovative products that reflect terroir and changing consumer tastes when a lot of Canadian producers of whiskeys and alcohol have been a little bit slow to react. It's not to say that the big guys aren't making some great stuff, but these micro distillers are the ones taking on business risk on the consumer enthusiast's behalf without any of the benefit that comes with scale, capital, or a regulatory system that considered anyone but mega distillers would make whiskey in Canada. Charles Benoit. Fill a, you, you can literally just fill a barrel with vodka. Um, so no whiskey went in there. And then uh, add some coloring, add some flavoring, caramel, and call it Canadian whiskey. And yeah. that's a travesty. Charles is an innovator, agitator, someone who is contesting what Canadian whiskey is. He is a lawyer. He's deeply concerned about Canada's food laws. When the Canadian government supports a standard for rye that contains no actual rye grain and the standard of Canadian whiskey, which enables distillers to fill the bottle with just less than 10% of whatever the blender or distiller was brave enough to put into its bottle. Enjoy. So your folks sent you to law school to become, yeah. to become a distiller. Right. And like a great tradition of Canadian distilling, I think. It was a bit of a roundabout way, but it actually kind of make the, makes sense. Went to law school, focused on international trade and customs, and um, was really fortunate. Uh, one of my professors had just retired from General Electric and the new fellowship had been created in his name. And uh, I was able to start working for General Electric in the customs and trade department straight out of law school. It's a tremendous experience. And, um, you know, within a year, year and a half, I was helping doing all the filings for moving uranium in and out of the country for GE. So (laughs) I'd like to think it was some pretty high-end customs work. And uh, GE redid their outside corporate policy at the time, their legal policy, and um, to really try to downsize their legal expenditures. And I was asked if, um, because I'd been in-house counsel at GE, if I wanted to become outside counsel to GE to take over a bunch of these filings that they wanted done by an arm's length provider. I did that, so I found myself uh, self-employed and hanging my own shingle. And uh, from there, uh, one day I was at the liquor store, and this was in Washington, D.C. Uh, they were featuring a local whiskey from Northern Virginia. I was like, wow, okay, it didn't, never even occurred to me like local whiskey was a thing. Went out there one day, uh, just on a weekday afternoon, was driving by, pulled in, met the owners, husband and wife team. They were the nicest people. And then, because um, I was pretty new to marketing myself as like my, like my legal services, so I said, if you guys ever think you need anything help or with anything let me know uh here's my card and, I, and right away they were like well we're actually part of this association the american distilling institute uh would you uh you should definitely contact them because we could definitely use your help right now so i did and then i uh, started working with adi and um ended up putting together like i saw, I saw a big problem they were have small distillers were having across the united states with distribution if you make something like um sort of a unique thing and uh, I'll give you a um, best example was uh, a Krupnikus, which is a Lithuanian liqueur that a distiller making a Krupnikus. And, um, you know, he's got a market for that spread it across the United States, but not really concentrated in any one market. So very hard to distribute through the traditional distribution system. Um, it's uh, kind of complicated, but DC is really unique in America. It's the only, they don't have the three tier system. Individual retailers can buy direct from distillers across the country. It's not the case in any state. And so, and I was living there and I, so I, I pitched that to ADI and then they were like, well, that's great. Can you build it? Cause you're there. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So that was kind of my first business. I went from hanging, you know, running, being like a independent contractor, uh, solo practitioner to, I built this distribution fulfillment business and, um, it, uh, glad to say it worked. It wasn't throwing a lot, a lot, a lot of throwing off a lot of money, pretty low margin, but it was definitely fulfilling a market need, but I wasn't something I was particularly passionate about. I mean, I was glad to do it. And, and I learned a ton about the craft distilling business 
because you know I'm seeing all the wholesale invoices and yeah. um, and then it led me to I'm going to the ADI conference in Louisville and just like I love the community, love the community, so glad to do this. But um, what was more exciting was uh, you know actually being at the distilleries than in a warehouse. So uh, a good friend of mine from Ottawa from high school, we uh, we went went to high school together in Ottawa and. Uh, he's like the true, he's an ultimate artisan. Like I'm kind of more, I'm, I describe myself as the general manager at Toronto Distillery Company. He's, <laughs> he's, he's the, uh, he's the head distiller and artisan. Um, you know, he's always been like that his whole life. He, um, you know, visited some small distilleries with me and came on trips. There was this one sort of like elder distiller, uh, one of the best distillers in the world, Ian Smiley, that I'd heard about in the States. And then subsequently I learned he was an Ottawa as well. Couldn't believe it. What are the odds? Uh, you know, this, um, he's published this book, How to Make Corn Whiskey, and you find it's like a no-nonsense technical book. Uh, you find a dog-eared copy in every craft distillery. Uh, I mean, he's all, all over the world helping distilleries get off the ground. And so Jesse and I uh, went to visit him in Ottawa um, uh, one Christmas when we were both back visiting our parents. And, um, you know, we are very interested in distilling, and uh, Ian was happy to take us under his wing. We, um, you know, hired him and learned a lot from him and benefited so much from his experience. And he's able to come down to Toronto a fair bit. Uh, so help us a lot in the early days. And so, yeah, so that all happened. And then we found, um, an affordable space in the junction. It was zoned appropriately and, uh, it was vacant. It was the old Canada bread factory. New landlord had just thrown up some drywall, but was renting it out pretty cheap. So we got that space. Uh, I sold the fulfillment business to a liquor store chain in Illinois so was able to hand that off. I'm glad to see that it's still going. And uh, yeah, here we are. So I've uh, been distilling now since uh, February 2013. That's an amazingly succinct backstory on something that I imagine is far more complex in every way. I, I've had a lot of practice in tours <laughs> <laughs> reciting it. So, so <laughs> this is a legal podcast, so get ready. So let's start with taxation without representation. Washington, D.C. doesn't have to abide by creator, distributor, retailer model that the rest of the United States totally does the so uh, the three-tier system at this point resembles Swiss cheese across America okay. right I mean m- now most producers have some retail flexibility um, so you got think of it like an oil company the, the model there's downstream and there's upstream right. um, one facet of the three-tier system that is very much uh, in control is that uh, again there might be exceptions it's incredibly we're talking about 50 states here but generally speaking, almost overwhelmingly, still to this day, retailers, whether they're bars, restaurants, or um, liquor stores, uh, retailers who are licensed by their state uh, can only buy beverage alcohol from a distributor in that state. Yeah. So that's like the main control. So that really limits the catalog of what they can offer. Um, and uh, But yeah, that's the one big exception with DC is that any retailer can go ahead and uh, you actually the retailer pays five dollars and they fills out this little import permit it's a one-page thing I've done it a hundred couple hundred times myself and um, and can just uh, do a deal with a producer anywhere and what an import a federally licensed importer or a distilled spirits plant or, or brewery or what have you and um, you know the brewery can just FedEx the case if they want to just order a case and some restaurateurs do that they get a U-Haul. There's lots of stories about this, you know, um, and they drive around, buy kegs. And one of the reasons for that historically, I actually, this one I'll cite, this is one of those legends. I haven't, can't say I've read all the legislative history <laughs> and the debates and whatnot, but, you know, supposedly DC is six miles by six miles. So they just never had their own distributors, right? I mean, distributing warehouses are big. There certainly are distributors now in DC, but supposedly historically is that um, it just, not, there wasn't, you know, it's such a small physical jurisdiction and there's not a lot of cheap land for large warehouses. So uh, existing distributing companies were content to source from their warehouses in Maryland and Virginia. And so yeah, retailers were given the freedom to buy from anywhere. Does that mean that D.C. is, is like a haven for, for hard-to-find micro-whiskeys? D.C. is the absolute best jurisdiction in the world for a beverage alcohol producer or any uh, beverage alcohol consumer enthusiast. Like, it's just, there's nothing else. And if you've lived there and you enjoy harder-to-find 
whiskey or wine, you're going to really miss that. I know I do. I really miss DC's liquor stores. Everything about it is paradise. They won't allow more than one license within 400 square feet. Uh, um, you know, they don't want a bunch of liquor stores on one block. What that means, and that actually, sorry, they will for wine and beer. Any Every bodega can have a wine and beer. But for liquor, Class A, you, uh, there's a 400 square foot limit. But they don't want one entity to gobble up all these licenses. So um, they have a very strict corporate control test. So every, if you want to be a liquor store, that's it. You're only going to get that one location. And um, so it, it's uh, it's great from a producer's perspective. So we export to D.C. and I can do a and even I can sell directly to a D.C. bar or restaurant. Uh, I mean, like even from Canada, I can it can go directly to a restaurant in Washington, D.C., but not uh, across the street in Toronto. That's amazing. Uh, I've never been to D.C. I work with lawyers there frequently. And I always think about there's an old Simpsons episode where Lisa Simpson speaks about the cesspool on the Potomac. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I always abstractly think about that and try and reconcile it with the excellent people that I speak with or work with there. And, uh, and the food scene is also blown up. It's sort of America's second city now. There's sort of an argument from the Richard Florida class that this is a place to be. So that's, that's fantastic. So then you come back to Canada. Tell us about sort of like the, so the origin story of getting a still here. Did you buy local? Did you bring it in from the U.S.? Like how was that process? Um, we uh, just deferred to Smiley. And, uh, so one of the, and we started with a $45,000 BDC loan. Uh, and so Smiley really recommended a manufacturer called Dayu, and he'd done distilling consulting in China and uh, through that process ended up uh, having his own still designs. So he designed our boiler and everything. Um, so it was from China. Um, I, a story I always tell people that it cost $150 to ship this 500 liter boiler uh, from China across the ocean, loaded on a train in Vancouver all the way to the Toronto Rail Terminal. And then about two hundred dollars in freight to get it from the Toronto Rail Terminal to our distillery. So, yeah, it was. Uh, we've been very happy with it. So it's a workhorse of a still. You know, it doesn't try to automate too many things, which I, a lot of, you know, there's some stills now. They have like you know electrical panels and things try and preset thing. But my the problems I've seen, forget about. It. I'm so glad we stuck with a fairly straightforward, simple artisan hybrid pot still. So it's 500 liter. And and no RCMP showing up at the border when you're we're bringing this in, saying oh, what the hell is this? Like, are you trying to <laughs> no, that, home distill and blow up a house? Or so not with that shipment. We had a customs broker, and we were already so. That actually was my one closest call to being arrested because before we had our main still, <laughs> I actually did purchase a little 13-gallon still okay. from a company called Hillbilly Stills in Kentucky. <laughs> and that one was perhaps a little naive. Um, I remember that evening well. It was uh, This would have been November 2012. I'm driving up towards uh, Buffalo in the Peace Bridge. Uh, and it's exactly the scene you picture, whirling windstorm, you know, the just painful winds and snow and everything. And um, I pull up to the uh, 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 main, like just as if we, if you were coming back from a Bills game, just the main passenger entry. And uh, I was thinking I could just make this declaration, no big deal. You know, I got to still whatever. Oh yeah, they see this all the time, exactly. right? I mean, we'd applied for a license at that point, and under the under the Excise Act, that's uh, yeah, okay. If you've applied for a license, you can have a still. You can't operate it, but that gives you the right to have a still. And then we'd applied for it. But that was enough when I pulled up the primary entry on the at the bridge. The CBSA agent was like, oh, okay, so this is for your business. He's very polite. said, you're going to have to turn around and go in through the commercial lane. Okay, right, fit my mistake. So this is for a business. We can't just use the personal lane. So uh, I get a little escort around, in and back out. I pull up. Now I'm in the lane for the 18-wheelers. I uh, talk to somebody, you know, 10 feet up high in a booth. I'm in a little Hyundai rental. And actually even had my dog with me. Um and uh, we pull over to um, you know main office, very large cavernous room. There was three agents working there. Um, I was the only person inside, and it's all pretty quiet still. They they're like, okay, well you you're here to do your customs declaration. You're a director of this company. They they clarify that. Yep, I am. They're like, okay, well go use this computer over here, um, and uh, it's like a ancient computer, like monochrome. DOS type screen. It's like the keyboard is like, it's like hit F3, F7. I'm just hitting like everything is hit one of those F keys. Uh, so I'm doing the, um, and thankfully, you know, I, I did customs work, so I know the tariff schedule. So I'm like, that's no problem. I got that. Uh, and then I printed off the tariff declaration on the dot matrix printer and hand it uh, along with the invoice. Now, 
this is where Hillbilly Stills comes relevant again because uh, not helpfully, the invoice has a copy of like a drunken hillbilly on the top, which <laughs> didn't really think anything of it, but I guess the optics aren't start, starting to not look good. So I submit this package to CBSA and um, it's silence for a bit. And then they come over and then they say, um, uh, this uh, older gentleman who um, you know, really conveyed authority, he um, said, you know, kind of in the, like, do you do you realize what you're doing here? Is this, do you do you have? Are you licensed? Are you licensed distillery? Can you? Um, and like, well, no, I haven't. Not we're not licensed yet, but we've applied for it. He says, well, I don't care that you've applied for it. If uh, you're not licensed, uh, it's uh, this is a crime. You can't have a still. Like this is pretty serious what you've done. And um, I'm like, well, uh, no, no. I mean, I'm pretty sure. And you know, being a lawyer. I, I never do this with law enforcement. Don't read the statute back to them, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't say, "Well, section such and such of the Excise Act says," uh, and that actually really set him off. And I remember he said, "You know, you don't tell me what the law is here. Uh, I oversee alcohol shipments every day um, across this uh, port of entry." Um, and he, he was actually he got pretty agitated, and I'm like, "Okay, look, just." You, I, I promise you, you're making. We're not trying to um, uh, do anything. And I, I, I start looking through my phone to pull up emails because I remembered I even uh, had uh, emailed CBSA, and I had done that right. because uh, we had to import hydrometers, the instrument that measures alcohol content. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to have that sent from the manufacturer. Uh, in this case, our the manufacturer is in the United Kingdom, directly to Ottawa for their lab, uh, so they verify the instrument. Right, Measurements Canada. Measurements Canada. Yeah. Uh, in that process, I talked to this woman, Diane, nicest government employee. And I've met, I mean, mo- almost everyone we deal with government is actually like lovely people. But I mean, my God, she was uh, above and beyond. I think she was a senior chemist. She was the nicest woman ever. Like, you know, even was giving us like recommendations on manufacturers to check out and everything and just so helpful. So um, I found this email and I, so I tell this, uh, the agent at Fort Erie, I'm like, look, I, I even spoke to uh, your senior chemist, Diane. And he knew her. <laughs> so uh, thankfully, CBSA is a tight-knit community. And that, that like, starting the statute didn't get me anywhere. But bringing up well, Diane, Diane. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, he's still, well, it wasn't quite that. No, no, because he, he had this uh, memorandum, enforcement memorandum. And then he went and printed it off and actually gave me a copy. And he's like, what do you, like, listen, look, read this. This is what it says. You cannot have a still unless you're licensed. And I look at that. And then I look up. And the date on the memorandum was 1991. Well, the statute is actually called the Excise Act, comma, 2001. Right. So I didn't even have to read the memorandum. I just was like, look, this is extremely out of date. Uh, the, um, the, you know, the statute was, oh, it was a new statute in 2001. So um, I, I, mean, I believe there's new MOUs online. And uh, thankfully, at that point, his, uh, his ire was directed at CRA, not myself, uh, for not keeping CBSA up to date with their memorandums. And then I was sent my way. So, yeah. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so that, amazing. That, that, was, that was the only sort of like, oh, crap, I'm in big trouble uh, <laughs> moment um, getting set up. Oh, it's so scary entering the border, right? Because it's like once you're in, the act mm-hmm. is done. Yeah. Now we need to figure out what to do with you. <laughs> exactly. It's like you've committed whatever offense thing you can possibly imagine, and now it's just a, uh, right? Yeah. Totally. Mm-hmm. That's, that's incredible. And so then you, working with Ian, presumably, you start to think about head, heart, and tail, and, and how to distill. Yeah. So we had this little 13-gallon still, and that's actually what we got licensed on. That was a, another fun day. Uh, three uh, revenue agents from CRA, they came by and... And I, and I really appreciated how much they looked the part, you know, like the sort of like... <laughs> just like, G-men? Yeah, exactly. Classic. Yeah. Well, it was actually one man, two women, but they all like had the classic G-men look, you know, like we're here, we're authority. And, you know, you imagine we just, I mean, we had this, we had our space, obviously, it was 2,000 square feet, but just sort of like this one 13 gallon still sitting on a table. And, um, but we had everything. We had all of our instruments at that point, um, scale, everything, measure, all everything, measurements, Canada signed off and... Uh, and they were great, uh, and actually one of the best compliments I ever got, I t- repeat it all the time, was from one of them, and they said, uh, you know, uh, we should do our employee training here because it's so small scale that we actually now understand how distilling works, <laughs> whereas they're used to going to large ethanol refineries and things like that, yeah. which is just, you're like, okay, overhead pipes, giant tanks, got it. This all looks very <laughs> scary. Yeah, exactly. Don't touch anything. 
so then so then you move on to this idea of like okay so now we can we can actually distill like we can make whiskey and gin and vodka and and just spirits generally so is this where jesse comes in and he's really he's focused on organic or or choosing a particular varietal of grain or i mean i remember the first thing just just to test out the still did a batch of sugar shine but uh and which is the most the worst stuff ever but just to <laughs> You know, wow, we actually made alcohol. Like, yeah, that, that's the first step. And, and Jesse, at this point, like, he consumes when he wants to know something, he knows everything. I mean, he's read every textbook at this point. Um, but there's no substitute for doing. So we went to uh, Grain Process Enterprises in Scarborough, uh, bought a whole bunch of different grains, and um, and uh, yeah, just practice. It's one of those ten hour, ten thousand hour things. So he was just, uh, but and the guy is uh, stamina like you wouldn't believe. I mean, just he goes and goes and. Uh, and this is the kind of person I'm not at all like, you know, to spend 12 hours, 14 hours on a distillation run and then think that you need to tweak something and then to go back and do it all over again the next day. Like, that's what you got to be that kind of person, like just obsessed with knowing and perfection above all else. At the beginning, first year, I would do all the mashings and he would do all the distillations. Okay. Mashing is like more just there's just follow the recipe. It's like if you can make cookies, you can mash. Or... Gotcha. So we into, uh, but in terms of yeah, this the business side of it, we so we had all these different grains. Uh I'd personally try and Jesse too just, you know, obviously with the fulfillment business, I had access to like craft spirits from all over America and I'm bringing them all up. There's no shortage of unaged corn, no shortage of unaged rye out there. I had never tried an unaged wheat. And it's really surprising when you try it. Because wheat, we've all, we've since found it doesn't really hold up in the barrel that well. Um, it, you know, oak tends to rud, ride roughshod over wheat the way it doesn't with corn or rye, and uh, and wheat unaged wheat has all these interesting properties, uh, very like creamy, aromatic, and so um, when we uh, ultimately had a meeting with uh, the LCBO whiskey buyer, who's the nicest guy in the world. Unfortunately, we lost him to New World Wines. But um, Greg Trana, I mean, wow, such a nice guy. And uh, we were able to get a meeting with him, and they don't do business like this anymore, but you know, I guess it was a bit earlier on in those days. And so, yeah, just casually threw out, yeah, well, this oh, we, we, first uh, he, um, we were like, what do we bring the guy that's presumably had everything, right? I mean, we're, this, is, this person's the whiskey buyer for the LCBO. And um, so with no intention of it being like our signature thing, uh, we'd actually designed our first label many People have probably seen it. It's, yeah. We still have it um, to keep on changing up the mash bill on the front label. But we wanted to bring him something. So we brought him an unaged wheat, assuming that he may, probably had never had an unaged wheat. And he hadn't. And he thought it was great. And so right there, you know, I kind of casually tossed out. How about we do an order for 150 cases to start? And we we're like, whoa, 150 cases, okay. Uh, <laughs> so we ended up spending the... Um, First uh, couple of years of our business, um, just grinding out unaged wheat. We weren't, we weren't even laying down, we weren't getting many barrels down at all or anything because we were just trying to keep up with the POs, failing miserably, mind you. Um, you, you there, one thing the LCBO still hasn't like figured out at all is they're not really that great with lead times. Mm. Um, it's, it's starting, I think, just to get better with our Applejack. We got a bit of lead time, but normally it's like the moment you have a listing, it's the, the POs will just drop on you and they want, like, we want to pick it up in two days. As a lawyer, you're used to this though, right? Nobody hurries up and waits like a like a lawyer. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, I like, <laughs> you know, I, I guess I when I I'm mean, keeping my my most immediate experience had been I'm, I'm a buyer, right? At this point, when and when I was working with craft distillers, it was no problem for me to right. say, um, you know, what do you got coming up? Oh, you're, in two months you're gonna have this, okay? And like put it in my calendar. I so I don't. I, but apparently it doesn't scale up too well. So that's all. We, we just did that. Um, but it wasn't. That's not the model we wanted to stick with. It wasn't the model. We, sorry, it wasn't the model we intended, right? I mean, the label for crying out loud had been designed to keep on changing up the mash bill. Found out we couldn't do that because if you change the mash bill on the front label, now you need a new UPC code, yeah. and well, that's a whole new listing. You can't just have a new listing at the LCBO. It doesn't work like that at all, um, especially when you're struggling to keep up with the one you've got. Yeah, we did unaged wheat for about two years. I, I personally, um, as a, speaking as a consumer, I want to try all these things once. I want that knowledge. And that's the way I view these unaged single grain whiskeys as their experiential, experiential offerings to understand what that grain brings to a whiskey. Completely agree. But you don't want to buy it a second time. I mean, it's not a substitute for the whiskey you're going to drink at the end of the day. So, um, yeah, I totally agree. I've done uh, uh, dog tastings where you just go through and 
and you see a different mash bills and then different different distillers choosing when to start and stop their their draw okay that's actually that's that's an, that's uh that's cool that's impressive that's pretty rare yeah. um we we uh our single grain distillations we still do those tours every weekend i mean we uh they're all private bookings and uh we have groups come in and everyone loves it but yeah we, they always they always have rye corn and wheat and then we always have some more unusual cereal grains for them to try um so uh yeah it, it's a great experience um i should I, I throw in a word too about uh, the organic yeah please and so uh both jesse and i were city guys and so we didn't know a lot about farming before we got into this but we um we knew that we kind of wanted that sort of farm to table link and we wanted to um uh we wanted to source local and um something that you know we both felt fairly strongly about and uh, I we were really really surprised when we went to Grain Process Enterprises in Scarborough. That they're, I mean they're great, but you ask them and can you tell me like oh is this is this wheat from like the GT around the Southern Ontario? They'll be like it's from Western Canada. That's the best we can tell you because it's all like co mingled in silos. Yeah, totally. Sometimes they may be able to say it's an Ontario grain, but more often than not those they can't. And but they also said if you want to uh, if you want to if you want to know where your grains come from, just go organic because in the organic system got this rock solid traceability it's really a cornerstone of the organic system mm-hmm. and uh so we did that well we looked we uh started calling up um some organic buyers we met uh, our miller kate uh, mark hayhoe of k2 mill and beaton who's um just a wonderful wonderful individual and have been a fountain of knowledge for us and definitely has helped us make a much better whiskey and um uh, and then we realized, you know, it's once you're buying organic grains, it's not a big lift for a processor to get organic certification themselves. So that was an obvious thing to do. And so we did that and uh, became an organic distillery. A, like the the wheat component of this is fascinating, right? Coming to whiskey, are you a whiskey guy or an American whiskey guy or a Scotch guy or a Canadian rye guy? Like, natively, sure. what's your what's your background? I would say I'm a straight spirits person so okay. i've really like i um you know i'm older now i'm 34 i uh when you're 20 it's all good but when you get older <laughs> like those you know nasty congeners that are in a lot of spirits um are trouble right uh i still love a frozen you know pre-mixed frozen margarita and i'll have a few sips and it tastes great and i'm like okay now i'm like you're, you're just pre-programmed to be like i'm having a frozen margarita i'm having a good time but you feel it, you know, you wake up the next morning and it is lingering with you and you're like, oh, like your fogginess in the head. You know, I always say to tell, try to tell people now, you don't just taste with your nose and your mouth, but also your gut. And to go back to straight spirits, it's, um, you know, unfortunately it just, if you're going to have, if you're going to have like a two to three ounces of a whiskey or something, you want to make sure it's straight. And the reason you want to make sure it's straight is because that means there's no additives, no coloring, no glycerin, no nothing like that, they could potentially mask harsh congeners. So I found that if I buy straight whiskeys, which were American, um, that I can have two to three ounces neat in a rock glass at the end of the night, and I'm, you know, I wake up fine. Like, I'm totally good. Yeah. But if I have um, something that's not straight, I'm, I find the effect much more pronounced. So I rely on straight for its definition of, um, I mean, I do love new char because I got a sweet tooth and I love like caramel and vanilla and oak. Um, but I primarily stuck to buying um, straight spirits because I just, they treated me better. Well, I, I completely agree. I often look at the uh, the U.S. standards of, of bottled and bond and, and straight and, and just bourbon and rye generally with a bit of envy, right? Because mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. I mean, congener is a very particular term, right? Like it's, it's got sort of, for me, it's got like a negative chemist uh, connotation, right? This is not something that's supposed to be here. This is. Well, there's good congeners and bad congeners. Not, not all congeners are bad. It's the whole distiller's art, the whole art of whiskey is getting the good congeners and leaving behind the bad ones. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so right. if you want no congeners, that's vodka. You uh, That's easy, right? Yeah. So just uh, keep, you know, don't condense the spirit until you get to 95.0. Right. And at that point, it, it's called all neutral spirit. All the congeners are gone and you've got vodka. But if you want to make a nice whiskey, a nice brandy, you're absolutely, you're trying to, it's, that's the art of keeping the good ones, discarding the bad ones. Right. Right. Yeah, uh, so that's the whole cuts, right? The, 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 the hearts, the, that's, that's exactly. The hearts is the good, those are the good congeners. Yeah. And, and that's one of the nice things about 
uh, straight whiskey is that uh, it you're 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 getting guaranteed a couple of, a lot of things, but one of them is that your heart's cut was below eighty percent alcohol by volume, right. um, which is far far lower than you know what's typically passes in Canada. So um, I mean it's uh that's everything if you that's that's uh, that's whiskey like people are like what is whiskey and um if you don't start with a relatively lower heart's cut you know heart's cut around the 80 percent mark nothing you can do after that is going to make it whiskey it's gone and then you're just adulterating vodka and, and you know adulterating in food you know what it means right it's yeah, um absolutely. so you're trying to make some one thing taste like another thing and you can do that in canada regrettably under our standards you can uh, take um, a bunch of vodka, fill it. You, you can literally just fill a barrel with vodka. Um, so no whiskey went in there. And then uh, add some coloring, add some flavoring, caramel, and call it Canadian whiskey. And yep. that's a travesty. Like a, a specifically, this is Canadian whiskey. Canadian whiskey. Like whiskey can be a lot of things, but Canadian whiskey exactly. is is this so why in the u.s if you see if you see uh you know some of the like larger legacy labels in the u.s if you see the term blended whiskey it's because neutral spirit was mixed in with the whiskey so and that always really struck me because the u.s reg if i'm pretty certain but this is easy to double check but you can't call it if you if you can call it whiskey so long as it's below 95 percent alcohol by volume so straight whiskey is much lower it's below 80 percent alcohol by volume but to actually if, if you're calling it blended whiskey that means you actually put in neutral spirit 95.0 um no congeners so it's it's striking that uh, other than the fact that it's much cheaper to produce um neutral spirit on a continuous column still you can't make whiskey on a continuous column still so I guess that cost explains everything. I've thought a lot about uh, this Canadian whiskey standard because I really struggle with it as well. Like I look at, I look at the, like there's this wonderful simplicity that comes with a lot of the American statutes uh, and clarity in terms of their labeling. Uh, and these statutes are like 110 years old, a lot of them, like sort of like late, late 19th century, early 1900s sort of era. Bottled and Bond, I think is 1897 or right. something like that. And like really one of the first like consumer safety or consumer protection statutes that we have in North America or in the Western world uh, because people were getting adulterated whiskey, right? Mm -hmm. Flavored with tobacco, flavored with uh, like paint thinner, like mineral spirits, uh, things that will make you very violently ill. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of sort of tying the the distiller to the the ager or the warehouse and then to the uh, the retailer was a way of almost dealing with like a Donahue Stevenson problem. Like you could actually, there was a traceability to it where we could apportion liability and make sure that everything was uncontaminated and federally inspected and safe for you to drink. Um, but in Canada, I mean, we've got what we've got. I'm not sure how we've got there. I don't know what the history of the Canadian standard is. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're continuing to do a lot of research into that. What have you got? Because like, for me, it's it's baffling. Like it, it is. I mean, in Scotland, you're allowed to put in caramel, uh, and and that's that's okay. Like I don't like it. Caramel is a bitter taste that comes to it with it, and and the idea of having some, frankly, what I consider an adulterant, uh, is is a little disappointing because mm-hmm. I don't think it's necessary, right? And and seeing the natural color is is helpful. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's meaningful, and, and this is definitely, I mean, this is definitely an American perspective when it comes to to whiskey too, right? It's like, like distilling to 125 proof, throwing it into the barrels and that are new char, and uh, and and letting. Uh, a good distillation process mixed with some some fresh American oak that's been burned uh, creates a really satisfying product, and I don't have to ask any questions. Like I know everything I need to know about exactly, it, yeah. and that's really satisfying. So when I grab a bottle of Canadian whiskey, it could have some sherry in it. It could have a bunch of coloring in it. Probably does. Uh, it could be aged in pretty much anything. It could be distilled up to the nth percentile, like you said, and then brought down and become. Uh, whiskey, and, and we have, we can't forget may or may not have any rye, despite being labeled rye whiskey. <laughs> yeah, that's right. This is this is definitely rye. It's like eh, it may not have any rye in it. Mm-hmm. It's very challenging to. I mean, we do whiskey tastings uh, with the firm and try and introduce uh, lawyers to to whiskey tastings and sitting them down with the Glencairn glass and trying to explain to them uh, what things are. And it's a question that inevitably comes up in our intro tastings is. So this is rye, and it's like this is different than this. And it's like yes, this has rye in it for sure. I can promise you yeah. that. Ninety-five percent of it's probably rye, mm-hmm. uh, but at least fifty plus one. But in Canadian rye, not so much. So you've encountered this 
standard, obviously. How have you thought about it? Because what you've done, you've now released your first barrels and you've been very specific in a couple of ways. You've called your whiskey straight Canadian whiskey and that isn't necessarily a standard that, that's been created, straight Canadian whiskey. We have whiskey and we have Canadian whiskey and then we have all sort of the whiskeys of the world and what those mean. And typically they mean that they have the qualities of scotch, has the qualities of scotch and is from Scotland. Essentially is what the standard reads. When you've so you've encountered the sta- the standard, uh, I mean some some there's a whiskey writer named Davin de Corgamont who thinks of the standard as an incredible opportunity for Canadian whiskey to to be creative and to put different things into your whiskey and to really sort of uh, innovate in in the whiskey making process. Like you just shook your head and I agree with you because I think it's complete bullshit. Yeah. But so when you looked at that and you looked at what you were able to do. I guess the problem you encountered was was how do we make it clear to our, our consumers that what you're drinking is actually straight Canadian whiskey? You, you mentioned uh, straight whiskey, and how we're, and that's what we've now, and we're creating that mark in Canada uh, with uh, other distillers. So it means a lot of things, but uh, we were you know, distillation proof, which, you know, it's great. Like, I love talking about it with people that get it, but that's so far off consumers radar and I, the moment you start distilling you realize how that's actually everything like how far deep am i going into the tails that's like a whole, that's a very interesting thing you know if you're if you're bottling unaged you're not going to go very you don't want to go into the tails you just want very narrow hearts cut but if you're going into if you're going to be oak aging then uh you know you're going to go want to go deeper into the tails and and having like that's just, that's just everything like that's that's the foundation that's the number one building block so that, it's impossible to respect the Canadian whiskey standard because it doesn't control for distillation proof, right? I mean, um, th- saying requiring three years is a bit odd if you don't control for um, barrel type, which it doesn't. So, but uh, if you but not but I you, but I we can't I can't get past that. There's no distillation proof, and that's I, I don't know a single distiller that respects that. Uh, so, um, you know, we I, I guess my response to uh, Somebody said, would say, oh, isn't it wonderful you have all this freedom? I don't, my response is, I don't know any distiller that is interested in trying to make vodka taste like whiskey. And so we don't want that. That's not a freedom we're asking for. It's a for. very peculiar type of freedom, right? right? Exactly, yeah. It's like that would be very helpful if you were trying to sell gobs and gobs and gobs of... Yeah. Do we want that for our dairy producers? Do we want, you know, right. the freedom yeah, to... Like, yeah, it's milk. It's like, it's like yeah. 10% of it roughly can really be like sherry right. or <laughs> caramel. We'd like a framework that, you know, gave more stature to the industry, which is normal again, right? That's what certification marks are mostly used for, you know, cheeses, um, all sorts of... I'm trying to find... So, so where do we go to... So when you say creating a mark, I'd like you to ferret that out. I mean, what does it mean to you when you... So we can get together... With, with other micro distillers or smaller, newer distillers who, who do respect the idea of, of whiskey and really want to create sort of a, a Canadian terroir that's beyond Canadian Club. How, what's your process? Like, how do you get distillers together to think about this? And how do you create a mark? Excellent question. And I'm not going to, like, it's, this is just the very, very beginning of what's going to be a very large collaborative uh, process. And I can't wait to get input from uh, and others, I can't wait to get input from everybody. So already, um, you know, to, we, we released first barrels, straight Canadian whiskey. Uh, for us, the importance of straight was, uh, all about, um, uh, the dis- controlling for distillation proof. And then, uh, and then also, um, we used all new char barrels and, um, but uh, straight also means two years in the U.S. Um, f- from just a distiller's perspective, we um, we found that, like I had already mentioned earlier, the grain gets completely like it's done. I mean, you put grain in a new char barrel, and you've got this nice caramel and vanilla, but the the wheat's gone. And so we added barrels that were younger than two years that were prim- primarily wheat specifically because we wanted trying to bring the grain forward and we put our age statement right in the front label so since doing that um we've uh and we 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 talked with some other distillers before we did it and i think a lot of distillers would like the freedom to you know like two years it's kind of arbitrary why exactly you know i mean maybe you so you just 
if you want to make your whiskey, if you want to have like a, bring a certain grain forward, knowing that you couldn't use a barrel, even if you thought it was great, like why not? We like to say, just let the distiller, you know, if they want to put their name behind it and they give the consumer all the tools, why not let them? Why not let that happen? Completely. Very no. like U.S. approach again, right? It's well, like to call it straight. Well, no, in the, right, but in the U.S. though, no, you cannot put whiskey under two years. So that's a right. that's a liberty we took beyond the U.S. standard. Right. Um, so I guess from two to four, you have to declare. That's right. Uh, if it's uh, if that's it's right. three years old, you say three years old. That's right. Um, but uh, so we've um, gotten a lot of feedback uh, with the uh, Canada Whiskey subreddit. Um, on uh, Twitter and talking to whiskey fans and, and asking for their opinion because we're still like in the works of developing the standard, and uh, and you know that was really helpful because you got after the consumers are, need to be part of the development of this new framework too, yeah. uh, and um, and I've I've done I've, I've I've come around on that now and so I I for straight whiskey because it. It's it's um, it's you think of it as an aspirational standard, right? It's above whiskey you're making, and um, if it's in for in consumers, they don't really think so much about distillation proof. Um, they really do go to age first, but we don't. We're so sensitive. We don't want to be perceived as having a standard in Canada that's less than the American standard. And age is the first thing people like for whiskey fans. Like, oh, straight means two years, and so the feedback has been um, like. We, you know, everyone's been really positive. Well, not everybody, but uh, there's some there's some haters in the whiskey establishment. But uh, the feedback has been overwhelmingly like, you know, appreciate that you guys, you know, put you put the age statement on the front label, but let's let's not have a standard um, that's uh, any less uh, strong than the American one if you're going to use the word straight. So uh, I've I've actually I think I've I've come around on that. You know, first barrels was a pretty limited run, and so I'm um, getting close to about half gone half gone. But I think, uh, and uh, we've been talking with distillers um, in our association, and uh, it the consensus is shifting now. So I think when we um, actually just been looking at the recounting the input, and I think we're at a majority now. That so we're gonna we're gonna stick with the U.S. two-year minimum for straight. Um, but uh, to go to what your earlier question is, that's just I mean, so a straight whiskey. This is great. We and. Re- it's gonna, we're going to have the same kind of assurances of uh, distilled at less than 80, new char barrel, aged two years uh, in the mark. But we would like more standards. Uh, there should be more certification marks uh, to control for things like, you know, maybe um, an, Ontario, uh, an Ontario whiskey standard to control for Ontario grain to kind of protect that dead wad. Maybe that's the thing we can do, just an idea. And um, and then also, um, you know, new char is one taste profile but it's not the only one and um others like to uh, age in use barrels or wine barrels or what have you so um maybe even more cert- uh, certification marks uh going forward that would give consumers the knowledge of that this is an un- like this is a spirit that's like clean i call it clean straight off the still it, there's no additives right because i think that yeah. more and more people are going to want that um but without necessarily getting into um everything else right um so when you see when you think of this standard do you think of of going through a process like the vqa where there are there are regulations and acts where do you see something that's that's private market driven so something where distillers across canada can come to an agreement over over what qualifies as uh as straight canadian whiskey and because there's there's no space for it or it hasn't been created in our food and drugs act standards it can be what you think it is, and you can change it as needed. I like the idea of certification marks. So certification marks, they operate under trademark law. They run like trademarks, and uh, I like them for a lot of reasons. One is that um, they have to be renewed, and so and there's an so that gives um you know an ongoing opportunity for um, like say so the mark the certification mark has to be held by an association who the 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 entity that holds the mark can't use it for their own benefit they have to hold it on the for the benefit of uh, other users so um, but it's the way things are it's totally conceivable that you know um, one group gets a certification mark and they abuse it or run roughshod or they're just it's not being but in the certification mark system, that gives other producers who are maybe being excluded, um, or and as well as consumers, there's an opportunity to give the feedback. It's a, it's a much more of a living thing. 
VQA, I'm not an expert on VQA, but uh, VQA much it does involve there's a VQA act, right? There's legislation, and um, and based on our track record of legislating alcohol laws in Canada, uh, pass. <laughs> you know? right. Yeah, I'd, I'd much prefer um, trans, more transparent, living, breathing certification mark um, than um, a legislated, c- cemented. Because, I mean, it's interesting, like the concept of, of, of creating an Ontario terroir is super attractive to me generally. Mm-hmm. But it's something that uh, in, in the first season I spoke with Dan Coles about BC's liquor law reform. And so they've created a mark within the act that confers a variety of benefits in terms of mm-hmm. taxation and accessibility and, and licensing. Uh, so long as a distiller or brewer uses primarily grain that's sourced from. Not primarily, 100%. Yeah, 100% uh, BC agricultural inputs they have to use. Which is, I mean, it's amazingly protectionist, but at the same time, it's about creating uh, creating something that is uh, like completely vertically integrated that's produced in British Columbia uh, to, to express or create an expression of, of what BC whiskey might be like. So we actually tried to, um, we have Foodland Ontario, and uh, I read the Foodland Ontario manual policy manual and um uh and they have these categories so this for some categories like if it's canned soup or something uh you don't have to be it doesn't have to be 100 percent. but then they have a catch-all category that if you're not like canned soup or one of these other predefined things you can but if you're 100 if you're 100 percent ontario inputs you can use the foodland ontario logo and uh, i thought that that was terrific and um excitedly applied to be able to use because we're we use 100 percent ontario on our whiskeys and i uh, wanted to use the foodland ontario logo how'd that go uh not well um so got an email back saying like uh sorry no alcohol for foodland ontario and then i was kind of curious I'm like okay did is there is there some sort of authority you're relying on or are you just deciding that right now and i didn't get any response to that email but then I got in regular mail, um, this was in 2013, uh, a letter back from Kathleen Wynn saying, no booze. Mm. <laughs> Just deal with it. <laughs> that was the end of that comment. That was the end of that. That was Charles Benoit of the Toronto Distillery Company. For our discussion on a graduated spirits tax, indirect taxation, and the process of suing the government on constitutional grounds, check out part two of this episode. Thanks so much, Charles, for joining me in studio. And thanks, as always, to Shane McPherson for the lovely music. Take care.